As Chad said, my name is Craig Keck. My wife, Laura, is with me here, at least for the first few days. Um, we both work at Faith Baptist Bible College. Uh, that's kind of new to us. This is, uh, we've only, uh, we just finished our second year. Um, before that, I pastored for 18 years. Uh, we have uh, four grown children. Uh, my wife is, like I said, is going to be here for the first few days, and then she actually has some work to do, so she's going to uh, have to have to leave, um, and I'll be batching it after that. So, uh, but we're we're excited to be here. Uh, we are only recently introduced to um, the camp here. Uh, my first time coming here was actually, I think, in February, and then my second time was in April, and then this is my third time. So. We're very, very happy to be here. Um, my first ministry was as an editor at a group that printed Bible curriculum for Christian schools. And three of our children were born while we lived in North Carolina. That's where this ministry was. I'm not from the South. Um, I'm a Midwestern boy. So while in North Carolina, we heard them use words like uh, groany and ugly in ways that we were not used to. Uh, when a girl was looking mature, Maybe because she was wearing earrings for the first time or heels for the first time, a person might say, man, she's looking so groany today, meaning grown up. That's what that meant. Um, or if a child was acting unkindly, they might say, don't be so ugly. So there are some cultural terms that we had to learn when we lived down south. Not a lot, but some. I also pastored for 11 years in Minnesota. It's a, it's a great family-friendly state. We, we enjoyed our ministry there. Um, we probably have some people that grew up in Minnesota in this audience here, and what I'm about to say is you'd only know that if you grew up in Minnesota. If you came to Minnesota after, you know, you're, you were uh, an adult, then you might not know this. Um, but if you grew up in Minnesota, then there's an eccentricity about Minnesotans that you know. And that is this. You remember the child's game, Duck, Duck, Goose? It's not what Minnesotans call it. Yeah, Minnesotans call it duck, duck, gray duck. And it's crazy, I know. It's, it's, I think it's communist. I'm not sure what it is, but, <laughs> but they are really adamant about that, So, uh, as, as you could tell. So little eccentricities in language like that are kind of interesting to me. Cultural differences can also show up in more than just words. They, they show up in behavior. My wife and I are not, not really international travelers, but in, in 2016, my my oldest son got the chance to study a semester abroad in China. And so Laura wanted to visit him over spring break, and I was fine with her checking into it, but honestly, I did not think that we'd be able to afford even her being able to go. But she found tickets, round-trip tickets, for $600 a piece. I don't know how she managed to do this. I couldn't believe it. Um, and so we bought them, and we found ourselves in China over my son's spring break. Now, China is a different culture. They've been influenced by the West, but they're their own culture. Um, believe it or not, Pizza Hut is fine dining there. Because it's, because it's so expensive, the Pizza Hut has tablecloths and you walk in, it's like, that's like a big date to take someone to, to Pizza Hut. My son, I mean, I know you're saying, no way, that, you, some of you did not know you've been doing fine dining. You've been treating your family really well if you've been taking them to Pizza Hut. My son takes us to the Great Wall of China and after taking a, a train, we come to this large parking lot with tons of tour buses on it. And so you bought your ticket, and then you just got on any, any random bus, and it was going to take you up to the wall. And, uh, but, but we approached this like Americans would. For at least one bus, we tried to wait in a line and wait our turn to get on the bus. But that's not the Chinese way. Uh, they don't queue up politely, or at least politely by our standards. 
They rushed the bus door and pushed their way onto it. There was no line. There was a half circle outside the door of, of the bus with people pressing their way onto it. And once we realized that, um, we developed some sharp elbows and we, we tried to get on a bus. Actually, my wife was about to get separated from my son and me, and so she had to take down a little old lady to get on the same bus with us. It was, it was really, really sad. Um, that's mostly true. I mean, it's mostly true. The point is, culture was very different. Chinese people in China behave in accordance with their culture, and not standing in line works well for them. In Matthew 5, which is where we'll be tonight, Jesus calls us to live in accordance with our new heavenly culture. We need to know what a heavenly culture looks like. Jesus calls us to be kingdom citizens. You must live as a citizen of God's kingdom. And in Matthew 5, 1 through 12, Jesus describes the ethics of a new kingdom, one that is countercultural, not just to unbelievers, but to the natural way that we would live otherwise. There's a little bit of background information that, that we need to make sure we get the most we can out of this passage today. And, and I'm, I'm just going to jump to the thorny question, and that is this. Does this sermon apply to us? Some have said that this sermon only applies to disciples, or it only applies to Christ's future kingdom. And I'm just going to let you know I disagree with both those. Obviously, I'm preaching on it tonight. Um, we, we know the disciples were there when he preached this. Christ preached this at one time. But we also know that a much greater crowd was there, and they were amazed at his teaching. Why would they be amazed if it, if it weren't for them? Why would Jesus teach it if it weren't for them? So what we're going to talk about today as we go through the Beatitude is the ethics of Christ's future kingdom. But we are supposed to live them now. Jesus preached it to people that weren't living in the future kingdom. Why do that unless that has application to us today? We cannot live them perfectly, not now, because none of us will be perfectly Christ-like in this age, but we can grow in living this ethic. And Jesus is actually describing the ways that righteous people live. Blessed here, it's a, um, the, the Latin word is where we get the words beatitudes from. Um, it, it's a word which means a person who is singularly favored by God. It's a sign of God's approval of a person. It's having an enviable place in life. The opposite is actually being cursed. It's, it's not really to be unhappy. It's, it's not a subjective feeling of unhappiness that, that Christ is talking about here, but it's an objective reality. It's a settled knowledge that you have received God's grace. It's a fact, not a feeling. It's happiness, but happiness based on reality, on facts. So here, in Matthew 5, 1 through 12, Jesus gives us two truths that help us live as a citizen of God's kingdom, that help us live righteous lives. And the first truth is this. God's Kingdom citizens are crushed before God. They're crushed before God. Now, maybe you don't like that word. I, I think it communicates what Jesus is saying in verses 3 through 6, that the heaven-minded Christian knows who they are before God in their own strength, and it crushes him or her. There is no room for pride in the heaven-minded saint. Why are we crushed? Well, there's four realizations in these first few Beatitudes. And the first one is this we realize that we are bankrupt. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who are the poor in spirit? This is the beggarly poor. In the first century, talking about it economically, it would have been those that were living hand to mouth. About 15 years ago, I was able to go on a missions trip to South Africa. And in, like in many countries, there is a huge gap between the haves and the have-nots. And one day the missionary was taking his trash to the dump and he said, hey, why don't you come and see the dump? And I'm, okay. I mean, I'd seen all sorts of shanty towns, people building things, making houses out of some corrugated metal and some cardboard, and, and, and I thought that I had seen the depths of South African poverty. But there is a level of economic deprivation below the shanty town, and it's those people that live at the dump. We took our trash bags out of the car at the dump, and they ripped them open, looking for whatever they might use. It was sobering. Jesus, of course, is talking about spiritual poverty. The poor in spirit are those that recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. You know that economic poverty leads us to only have confidence in God, not our own bank accounts. Many times we, we say we're depending on God, but we're actually depending on our bank accounts. When you don't have a bank account, often you really are dependent upon God. Well, spiritual poverty helps us understand that we cannot offer anything to God and we don't try. Those that boast of their internal spiritual riches don't understand this. I was listening to a podcast last year about the downfall of a pastor and his megachurch. And at one point, the podcaster related a story, a true story apparently, of some fans flocking around this pastor. And when they finally got the pastor into the car, an associate commented that, man, that experience was really weird. I mean, these people are flocking around you like you're some Hollywood celebrity. And the pastor responded, I don't know if you know this, but I'm kind of a big deal. And it was then, the associate says, that he realized they're in trouble. That is not a poor in spirit pastor. The person described in Matthew 5.3 realizes that they have no resources for saving themselves in themselves. They can't do it. They have no spiritual merit. And the in, the in spirit of poor in spirit is really important too. It means that it's an attitude of the heart. It's an internal disposition, not an outward state. So others might think of you as poor in spirit, but they can only see the outside. God sees the inside. The spiritually self-sufficient person doesn't need God. They may give God a tip of their hat, but they're not desperate for his grace. They're not desperate for his work in their lives. Maybe they even think that there's another way to happiness where they don't have to be quite so needy. But it is the spiritually bankrupt that receive God's kingdom. It's not based on gender, race, wealth, or talent. Jesus is telling you to give up your own kingdom so you can inherit God's. That's true for salvation, but it's also true for sanctification. James and Peter both say in their epistles, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You have never in yourself manufactured a God-pleasing response in your life. It has always been by God's grace, or it has not been God-pleasing. You don't have it in you. You are spiritually bankrupt. You have nothing to offer God that he has not already given you. And that profound realization 
should crush you. There's a second realization, and that is we are anguished. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, this might seem to be a contradictory beatitude in that you, you could read it, happy are the sad, which seems uh, you know, weird juxtaposition of, of terms. So what does Jesus mean here? It's not mourning in general or mourning over affliction or the death of a loved one, even though the same word was used for that. It's deep inner agony. It's actually those that grieve over their sin. Now, have you ever felt that way about your sin? I, I mean, I'll admit that most often I don't. My sin just, it, it doesn't bother me. I mean, it bothers me if it embarrasses me. I don't, like, I don't like other people knowing how sinful I am. But I cannot say that anguish characterizes my feelings about my sin. And that's sad. One person said this, God creates humble disciples, not proud power brokers. The crushed person not only knows they have nothing to offer God, but they also grieve over their wickedness. This, this sadness that leads to happiness is mourning over your sin. Paul said it this way, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The world's sorrow doesn't lead anywhere good. God's sorrow leads to repentance. Are you anguished over your sin? If you are one of those that mourns, you'll be comforted. And that, that, that's an amazing statement. It's not perpetual mourning without any hope. Let's hate our sin and love the gospel. We are encouraged through the gospel. At salvation, God forgives all past, present, and future sin. And after salvation, God offers forgiveness, this, this intimate relationship with him for those that confess their sins, 1 John 1, 9. You and I would be more prepared to live heaven-minded if our sin occasionally, just occasionally, crushed us so that God could encourage us. Spurgeon said it this way, those who laugh shall lament, but those who sorrow shall sing. There's a third realization, and that is we are gentle. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, how does gentleness or meekness show that we're crushed before God? Here's how. The gentle are humble. The harsh are proud. This person, described in this passage, doesn't reflexively defend himself. He doesn't care about his reputation. The meek are not actually intimidating, right? Sadly, we do not live in an age of gentle people. It's the age of bombastic social media opinions with little grace. And it turns out in the first century, Greek culture didn't value meekness either. They thought of it as a vice. This word that's used here was considered a vice. They considered it below them. Another way of thinking about this word is as a soothing breeze. Now, nobody in my entire lifetime has ever accused me of being a soothing breeze, okay? Maybe my wife, actually probably my wife, but not me. But, but it is a rich picture, isn't it? We all, we all know what this feels like, sitting on the porch after a hot day, and you get that soothing breeze, not, not you know, the high winds in Iowa sometimes that practically blow you off the porch, but that soothing breeze 
We all know what that feels like, don't we? Some people are like that. We should all aspire to be that. But those truly gentle, truly meek people will inherit the earth. It's a future promise. God doesn't give it to the proud. One commentator discussing the word translated meek here said, the word refers to an inward virtue exercised towards persons. When they are wronged or abused, they show no resentment. They do not threaten or avenge themselves. The opposite of this are the vehement, the bitter, the wild, and the violent. Would your family say that you are gentle? Dads? Would your family say that you are gentle? And if not, why not? Those that embrace the ethics of the kingdom, that are heaven-minded, will be gentle people. The humble are gentle. There's a fourth realization here, and that is that we are hungry, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So this is a, a literary device here. Hunger and thirst is, a, um, in English, we call it a hendiadis. That's where two words communicate one idea. We do this in English with other things like we, we, we say, hey, I want to be nice and warm. Well, nice and warm are communicating one idea, not, not two different things. Or we say, go try and do something. Try and do are communicating one idea. So hunger and thirst here are communicating one idea. And what they're communicating is this Intense desire, that's what they're communicating. And, and it, it fits, we are hungry people, we're hungry for, for many things. God created us as desiring beings, but often our desires are not sanctified. Of course, a person can desire sin, the uh, teenager or the adult hiding their secret sin of pornography is an example, but most of our desires are not overtly sinful, they just aren't the best thing. We hunger for comfort, for ease, for success, for money, for reputation. Get a little older, we hunger for grandkids or just for our kids to get married. Maybe you hunger for athletic children or, or other things. Those that are crushed before God are done seeking other things. They want what God wants. This beatitude could mean that someone takes a stand for righteousness in our world or, or a stand for justice. Injustice, of course, does make us long for heaven. Our world is very unjust. But more likely it is that Christ is communicating a hunger for personal righteousness. So let me ask you, is righteousness even on your radar? Do you even think about wanting it? Hungering is not an unusual metaphor in the Bible. What characterizes a person that is hungry or thirsty? Well, all they can think about is their hunger. They're not discussing philosophy or making plans for their next vacation. Hunger is the only thing on their mind. All of their plans center on getting food or water. Hunger, real hunger, pushes every other hunger out. When I'm really thirsty, I'm not at the same time thirsty for respect. I mean, I'm dying of thirst, but I'd really like people around me to respect me. That's not how it works. I just want water. It's singular. And a hunger for righteousness is the same. I cannot be hungry for righteousness and for applause at the same time. A hunger for righteousness and a hunger for anything else are mutually exclusive. So, Christian, do you need people to like you? I mean, 
I prefer people liking me. I think we're all alike that way, right? But do you need it? Do you have to have it? Here's what's incredible about this beatitude. Jesus says that those that desire righteousness will be satisfied. They that hunger and thirst for it will be filled, he says. Hungering for justice in our world will not be satisfied until the Prince of Peace comes. It's good to hunger for it and work for it, but that hunger won't be ultimately satisfied until Jesus comes. But hungering for personal righteousness, Jesus says you can be satisfied in this life. You can be filled. We seek it, and God satisfies. It's growth and sanctification. That, that should be our hunger. Those, those who hunger will be satisfied. You could summarize these first four Beatitudes as we have nothing, we are nothing, and we need everything. You know, as believers, we're actually not impressive people. Who's impressed with the poor, the empty, the humble, and the hungry? Those are people we feel sorry for. We don't envy them. Those are people that are crushed before God. And those people those people will embrace a heavenly ethic. They will have God's kingdom. They will be encouraged. They will inherit the earth. They will be filled. Like so much of scripture, it seems counterintuitive. Why would I be crushed before God? Because that's the only way to be filled. I said that Jesus gives us two truths here. The first truth is heaven-minded people are crushed before God. The second truth is God's kingdom citizens are compassionate to others. They're compassionate to others. Now, I'm not the only person who sees a little bit of a division between the first four Beatitudes and the second four. Um, I think it sort of parallels the two great commandments that Jesus gives in Matthew 22. He tells us to love God and love others. Or it's like the first tablet of the Ten Commandments that talk about our relationship to God and the second tablet that talks about our relationship to people. So our relationship to God, we should be crushed before him. But in our relationship to people, we should be compassionate to them. So what should characterize those relationships if we're heaven-minded people? Well, four characteristics. The first one is that we give mercy. And in each one of these beatitudes, and these next four, we'll have a because after it that we'll get to as we talk about it. So we give mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy is giving people what they don't deserve. It's being kind and forgiving to a person that has earned otherwise. Merciful people are generous, forgiving people. A superficial look at this verse could sound like what unbelievers call karma. You know, if you're, if you're merciful, the universe will reward you with mercy, is how some people might think about it. Or maybe it sounds like, you know, what goes around comes around. You get what you deserve. But that's, that's not what this verse is talking about. It's not showing mercy to get mercy from others because the mercy doesn't come from others. It's not some faceless providence that gives mercy to the merciful. It's God. He sees your mercy and rewards you with more mercy. Now, we give mercy because we've experienced mercy. If you're a parent of uh, two kids or more, you've, you've experienced this. Um, you've given one of your kids a snack, and then they have a chance to be generous to their sibling, and what do they say? No, okay? And it can annoy us, you know, maybe infuriate us. You just received a gift. I just gave you something. Be generous with your brother. Be generous with your sister. Come on, what's your problem? I just gave you something you didn't deserve. You should give them some of that. Remember the story in Matthew 18 where the great king shows forgiveness to the servant? 
The servant comes before the king, owing more than could be paid back in several lifetimes. He begs the king for mercy, and he tells him, I'm going to pay it all back, which is a joke. It's ridiculous. There's no way he could. But the king gives him mercy. He forgives him. And this forgiven servant goes out and finds another servant that owes him money. Does he forgive him? No. He throws him in debtor's prison and plans to sell his family to pay his debt. And we read that story in Matthew 18, and we rightly recoil at the injustice of it all. We expect that a person shown great forgiveness would forgive others. It just makes sense. And of course, if you know Matthew 18, you know that we are the unforgiving servant. We're the one who through the gospel has been forgiven a huge debt and we begrudge our family members. We begrudge our coworkers. We begrudge fellow church members the same forgiveness. We hold on to grudges. This relates to Matthew 5, 7. This is not, in Matthew 5, 7, it is not you initiating mercy and then God seeing it and rewarding you with mercy. That's a mistaken view of this beatitude. This is you realizing that you've received great, great mercy from a merciful God and out of that realization, extending mercy to others. And as you do, one of the promises is that God will show you even more mercy. Why would a person be merciful? Only if they believe they also need mercy. It's the humble person that knows they're a sinner. It's the person that has been crushed before God. Those that receive God's mercy will, will give it to others? Yes. And they'll receive more mercy from God. The second characteristic of our relationship to others is we pursue heart holiness. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Now, you might say, okay, how does this quite fit in my relationship with others? I mean, isn't holiness, isn't that kind of like between me and God? Well, hang with me here. I've called it heart holiness, and the verse says here that we need to be pure in heart. It could be indicating a single-minded devotion to, to, to Christ, like a sincerity. The word allows for that definition. The sincere will be pure. They, they're not hypocrites. The in heart, of course, is significant. It's Jesus' focus again on the inside, not the outside like the Pharisees. Jesus doesn't say here, blessed are the pure in action, or blessed are those that appear to be pure. It's blessed are the pure in heart. So what he's saying is our inside and our outside should, should mesh. They should agree. They should correspond. They should match. They should fit. We shouldn't be one thing on the inside and then another thing in the home. If our hearts are growing in holiness, we will be holy towards our neighbors and holiness towards them will be compassion towards them too. We pursue heart holiness because we know God. Only the holy can see God. He's separate from sin, Habakkuk tells us. So I can be holy because I know God. Do you know him? Does holiness matter to you? Sadly, it's not just our teens, both guys and girls, that struggle with immorality. Some adults do too. That's not holiness. But, but there's other things that we accept that also aren't holiness. Holiness is an absence of covetousness, of jealousy, of greed. 
living as if this world is most important is unholiness. And seeing God will motivate your holiness. We serve a thrice holy God. The third characteristic of our relationship to others is we reconcile the warring. We reconcile the warring. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We're supposed to be peacemakers. It's godly work to help reconcile warring parties. When I pastored, we had a a small Christian school, and I used to tell my school administrator that he did more counseling than I did. It's just that most of his was short term. He's meeting with a student for 15 minutes, then he's meeting with some parents for an hour after school, then he's got a staff issue, and he's meeting with a staff member. If you're a parent of young kids, maybe, um, that's true of you too, isn't it? I mean, you might feel that some days all you do is try to reconcile the warring kids in your household. Jesus says that peacemakers are happy. Has that been your experience? I mean, it takes effort. It's hard work reconciling people. Peacemaking is risky business. You can't be a peacemaker if you are not willing to disturb and confront people. You just can't. See, some think they're peacemakers because they don't upset the apple cart. They're always willing to go along to get along. They have the goal of avoiding conflict. They don't want parties in conflict to repent and forgive each other. That's hard work and some ugly things might have to be addressed. No, they just want people to to make nice with each other. Just pretending things are okay is good enough for them. Like what Ken Sandy says about this, that's peace faking, not peacemaking. We all love the results of peacemaking. We can see how that would make us happy. I mean, if two of your friends are no longer warring with each other, that's great for you. But the actual work of peacemaking is ugly. Those in the conflict may turn on you. might require long hours and emotionally draining effort. And it might not ultimately result in peace. Anybody that thinks peacemaking is easy has actually never done it. This is roll up your sleeves kind of work. Jesus calls us to be peacemakers. We need to be people that move towards parties in conflict. We can't avoid this work and hope someone else does it. It's interesting what Christ didn't say. Notice Christ didn't say, blessed are the peaceful. God actually wants an army of peacemakers, Christians willing to get involved in conflicts to reconcile persons to each other and to God. I think this is a challenge to us. We would rather avoid confrontation and conflict. We don't want to get involved. We'd rather not take sides. Yet Jesus says that to be kingdom citizens means we must, we must be peacemakers. So those co-workers that are warring, you have to help. Those church members that are warring, you got to help. Those family members that are at war, you got to promote peace. Maybe, most likely, those children that are fighting, you got to promote peace. We reconcile the warring because we are believers. Jesus says that his children, those genuinely saved, are characterized by reconciliation. The saved are called sons of God. People will know you're a believer if you roll up your sleeves and help make peace. Now, I've concentrated on people that are warring with each other, but this also can be peace between a person and God. Jesus says that we're living as he wants us to when we help a person be reconciled with God by sharing the gospel with them. 
kingdom citizens are compassionate towards others. And obviously sharing the gospel is the most loving thing we can do. The fourth characteristic of our relationship to others is this. We rejoice in opposition, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is another beatitude that seems kind of counterintuitive, right? I mean, how can persecution lead to happiness? Well, it can only be the case if we're persecuted for righteousness. If you're persecuted for stupidity, that's not blessed here, okay? It is just for righteousness. And God wants it to be righteous living that leads to our persecution. My kids played different sports growing up. And I wanted, you know, like any Christian parent, I hope, I wanted to teach them to handle both defeat and victory properly. But guess which one I preferred? Victory, right? We want to be magnanimous in victory. But Jesus here tells us to be humble in defeat. Persecution is temporary defeat, but defeat nonetheless. We know, we know in the end God wins, right? But, but in the meantime, there can be some temporary defeat. Verses 11 and 12 get very, very specific about the type of opposition that we'll face. They're an explanation of verse 10, the, the final beatitude. It says here that insults and false accusations because of Jesus. This is verbal opposition that you and I will face. I, I don't like either of those. Insults I don't think I deserve and false accusations are a definite injustice. Persecutions in verse 11 are probably physical persecutions. I'm not anticipating those with joy either. But Jesus says we can and should. In fact... Verse 12 contains the only commands in the entire passage. We read verses 1 all the way down through verse 12. The only commands in the entire passage are found in verse 12. You rejoice and be exceeding glad. Not, not normal glad, not pretend you're glad. You be exceedingly glad when you are insulted or falsely accused. That's the command. I mean, that's a different culture, Okay. That is a heavenly culture. No one expects that. What they expect for you when you get insulted is for you to fight back, to get revenge. That's what the falsely accused do too. They lash out. But Jesus says the ethics of his kingdom are different. Those that are persecuted respond with compassion to the persecutors. They don't get revenge. They rejoice. That joy is an attitude, not a feeling. They're glad that they are in good company. God's Old Testament messengers, the prophets, were often persecuted. And so you're in good company when you are insulted and falsely accused. That's what God's people should expect. We rejoice in opposition. Why? Because we look past this life. Verse 10 says we inherit the kingdom of God, and verse 12 says we have a great reward in heaven. We can rejoice in opposition because we know it's always just temporary, and it always gives us something greater, especially in the future. So you can treat that difficult, maybe even lying coworker with kindness because they are God's instrument to enhance your reward. This, Matthew 5, 1 through 12, could be a devastating passage to us. The call to righteous living is daunting. It's intimidating. But I like how Jesus drops encouragement in this passage. Yes, we'll mourn over our sin, but we'll also be comforted. 
Those that desire righteousness, they'll be filled. Those that realize today they need to grow in mercy will also receive more mercy from God. This passage is challenging, but it's also comforting. God's kingdom citizens are crushed before God. Are you self-important? Are you quietly proud in your spirituality? That shouldn't be because you're bankrupt. Wouldn't a bankrupt person, a Christian that was truly poor in spirit, live a life of desperate prayer? If you don't find yourself going to prayer often, then can you really say that you are poor in spirit? Remember, the poor here is a beggar. What do beggars do? Beggars beg. When you see your own poverty of spiritual fruit, you will be begging God to change you. When you see your inability to please God in your strength, you will be running to his throne often. Prayer is fundamentally about dependence upon God. I don't pray because it's a habit. I don't pray because I want stuff. I pray because I need God to do what I cannot do. I cannot change myself. I cannot root sin out of my heart. I cannot please God in my own strength. I fail and fail and fail, and while failing, develop a poverty of spirit that impels me to cry out to God. We're anguished. A person that is anguished over their sin will have a sensitivity to sin. Sin is no light offense to this person. The Christian that mourns doesn't have a carefree attitude towards sin. Sometimes we really don't think that our sin is that big of a deal. I mean, after all, Craig, everybody sins. We all do it. We can't help it. And you're right, everybody does sin. But saying that everybody does it is not the same as saying that it should be that way. Everybody sins, but we should mourn it. Are you sensitive to your sin? We're gentle because we're humble. Gentle people show their gentleness in how they respond to being sinned against. They don't get angry or upset. They don't fret or worry. They don't respond quickly and with force. The gentle can trust God even when they're sinned against. Even when people harm them, they can humbly turn the other cheek. Why can they respond so well to being sinned against? Because it's not their might that will obtain their inheritance. The gentle don't have to push themselves forward. They live lives of dependence upon God. The gentle trust that God will vindicate them someday, maybe not in this life, but someday they'll inherit the earth. And all those blustering, pushy, assertive, bold, and domineering types will find that their manipulative, calculating, and scheming ways have not gotten them what they wanted. Are you gentle when others sin against you? We're hungry. Wouldn't a person that hungers and thirsts after righteousness have a healthy spiritual introspection? Introspection sometimes gets a bad rap. It's often associated with self-pity or discouragement and the like. But if I really do act out of my heart, as Scripture says, over and over it says that, then examining my heart is not a bad thing. I could do it badly. Introspection, you know, I could do introspection badly. But it's not fundamentally a bad thing. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness involves a healthy spiritual introspection. This person is not a finger pointer. They're not secretly gleeful at the failures of others. They're not defensive. They're only disappointed with their own lack of righteousness. The blame shifter is not hungering and thirsting after righteousness. The finger pointer isn't either. You know why? Because you're not my standard of righteousness. I take no satisfaction in being as righteous as you are. I hunger for greater righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And so each of us looks at our own hearts and examines them for unrighteousness. We care whether our hearts are right with God or not. We aren't using the sins of others to justify our own sins. We're fighting against our own indwelling sin. Which one of those first four 
does the Spirit most want to change in you? He's working in your life today if you're a believer. Are you listening to his call through God's word? God's kingdom citizens are compassionate to others. If we've really embraced the ethics of God's kingdom, it'll have obvious results in your relationships. You will give mercy because you've experienced mercy. These people know that they're sinners not deserving mercy, and yet God gave them mercy. And because this person is very aware of his sinfulness, he's also aware of God's continued mercy towards him. Therefore, he finds it easy to be merciful to others. Are you a merciful person? It's possible that you're not. Not because you were raised without mercy or because that's your personality, but because you don't know God's mercy. I mean, you, you just don't think that God has to be very merciful to you. His mercies are new every morning for people like you and me. We must show mercy to others. We pursue heart holiness because we know God. Have you ever met a truly holy person? I don't mean one that you felt intimidated by because they did holy things or someone you felt intimidated by because you thought that they were secretly analyzing everything you did as to whether it met their standard of holiness. I mean a person that truly, really loved God. And you could see that their relationship with God was real. And you were encouraged to love God as well. That's what's promised to the pure in heart. Their relationship with God is real. It's daily. God is someone they talk to all the time. Their conversation always comes back to God. They live in a conscious awareness of God. Heart holy people pursue God. We reconcile the warring because we're believers. It is not natural to head towards a conflict. It's natural for us to run from them. But a peacemaker loves God so much that he's eager to help those in conflict. If you are a person that runs from conflict or isn't bothered when others are in conflict, you're probably not a peacemaker. And maybe God is calling you to that today. And we rejoice in opposition because we look past this life. This person fears God much more than he fears man. You cannot tell others the truth about their destiny if you also want their approval, right? Isn't this where most of, us, most of us struggle with the fear of man? We want this person to like us so much that we can't share the gospel with them. I'm a coward when it comes to that. Sometimes the reason we're not persecuted is because we're gutless. We long to be liked by those around us. Not so much that we'll join in their wicked behavior, but enough so that we won't condemn it either. The Christian that is persecuted is actually fearless. Remember the prophets? Imagine going to tell the king that he is sinning against God. There's no good way to say that. The king can kill you. Your life is in his hands. And if you're concerned about your life, if you're concerned about being liked, you're not going to tell the king the truth. Which one of these Beatitudes is most difficult for you right now? Which one do you need the Spirit's help to live? We need our affections changed if we are going to love Jesus' kingdom ethics. Will you let the Spirit change you? Will you pray, asking the Spirit to crush you where necessary and to make you compassionate to others? And we're going to talk in the mornings about repentance. I think this is a good segue into, into talking about repentance. We'll look at it from different perspectives and how it's supposed to be a lifetime discipline for us as believers. Let me close tonight by, by praying. Father, I thank you for your grace to us. God, this is, uh, this is such a, a powerful passage. I think one of the reasons 
why it's so powerful to us is that we realize Jesus actually spoke these words. This is a message he preached. And while all of the Bible is God's word, it's just, it's just neat to see a passage that we know Jesus at a particular time and place preached these very words to people like us. And so God, I pray that this, this group of Christians here would be crushed by the truth. But Lord, they would also rejoice in the gospel. And Father, because of the gospel, they would be compassionate towards others. It help all of us to take another spiritual step this week for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Yeah.